Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today, we're talking about racism in healthcare. For decades, we've been talking of racism as if it were a disease confined to the past, or at least on its way out. In fact, it's still very much alive, but it's taken a global pandemic where deaths from people in ethnic minorities are two to four times higher than in the white majority population, and another brutal murder in the US at the hands of the police for the white majority to make the diagnosis and to realise that the signs and symptoms have been there all along. In healthcare, a lot of discussions focus on government action, but in today's Deep Breath In, we want to focus on what we can be doing as individual GPs and local teams in primary care to change. We'll be hearing from Annabelle Shoramimo, founder of Decolonising Contraception, Jones Sadler, co-chair of the NHS Equality and Diversity Council, and hearing about racism in the US healthcare system from Shawnee Scott. I'm Tom Nolan, GP and clinical editor at the BMJ. And as ever, I'm joined by Navjoy and Jenny. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a GP in London. And I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. We want to embed discussion about racism into each episode of Deep Breath In, and beginning with this special episode. Navjoy, what are you looking forward to getting out from our chat today? Yeah, I think, as you're saying, Tom, um, with COVID-19 and the death of George Floyd, it's shone a light on racism and reminded us of, I guess, the impact that race has on health, which we know about, but I suppose we don't always remember. Um, And it's certainly, for me, not in a way that I kind of um, live in my day-to-day practice. So I suppose what I'm looking forward to today is just... um, just having an opportunity to reflect on some of that, you know, the the evidence for um, how race and racism impact on health, um, how racism has um, played out within medicine. Um, you know, I think we have to remember that medicine is not separate from society. And if we're saying that, you know, racism exists and permeates through society and, and is structural, then I think it's important that we are alert to how how that can um, influence us as individual practitioners and also the system um, that we work in. Yeah, and and what about you, Jenny? Yeah, I think along similar lines, I have been doing a lot of reflection since we spoke with Toyin Ajay on resetting general practice, um, and when she recommended that we listen to patients during this time where at least during coronavirus um, and when cases are surging, if we're not seeing so many patients in person. And where I've kind of gotten to so far is reflecting on the extent to which racism has been embedded, as you were starting to say, Navjoy, structurally into medicine, into medical education, um, and into healthcare more broadly. And further, that silence on our part about the status quo and the racist kind of um, policies and structures that do exist in healthcare 
is complicit, is upholding that system. So I'm keen to start moving toward being more explicitly anti-racist in the way that we work and in the way that we advocate for our patients. Yeah, I think as well as all of that, um, I'm also looking forward to getting some really practical tips from from our experts about what we can be doing as GPs, you know, individually or within our practices to um, yeah, to address or start to address some of these problems. So we're going to start by talking to uh, Annabelle Shoramimo, who's a, a sexual health doctor, but also is a founder of a collective called Decolonizing Contraception. And I spoke to her about some of the, the racist past in, in medicine and healthcare, um, in particular in, in the field of sexual health. Some people initially like, uh, how, what does that even mean? Um, I think it's more apparent um, to non-white people how um, contraception is colonised, in that contraception obviously is to stop people getting pregnant. It's very linked to um, population control um, and stopping certain populations reproducing, who is considered worthy of reproducing, who's considered inferior and superior. And there are quite a lot of um, still colonial undertones, sometimes the policy and the way that contraception and who gets access and who is told that they need sterilization is, not just in the UK, but globally. Mm. So very few people know, for example, that some of the pioneers of what at the time was called family planning, now is more called reproductive health, contraceptive care, um, such as Mary Stokes and Margaret Sanger, the founder of International Planned Parenthood, um, had quite strong ties to the eugenics movement. Um, So that really is at the heart, actually, a lot of um, how kind of contraception and a lot of modern family planning was birthed. Mm. And people aren't really aware of that and how it kind of influences our practice and our policy um, today. So just to add to, to what Annabelle was saying there, I thought um, it was important perhaps to uh, give a couple of examples of, of some of the very racist uh, views that, that these, um, these people had. Um, for instance, uh, Margaret Sanger, who popularised the term birth control, um, here's a quote, Birth control means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination and eventual extirpation of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. And similarly, Mary Stopes, a UK figure, um, she in 1920 uh, wrote about looking forward to legislation that would ensure the sterility of the hopelessly rotten and racially diseased. You know, these weren't just people with racist views, but these are really seem central to their their beliefs and and yeah their legacy. I mean, it is it's utterly appalling to hear that, right? Mm. Um, and it just really hits home with the way that um, our speech has changed over time. So that you know, no one would ever say those things, you know, in the public sphere right now. Um, I was listening to a podcast earlier today 
called America Did What? And it is all about, it's this really wonderful um, historian named Blair Imani and her co-host um, Kate Robards. And they do a lesson every episode on a different element of the U.S.'s racist history. And the episode I listened to today was about the GI Bill and redlining. Um, and it's just shocking how much, you know, what they spoke about in that episode was just blatant racism. Um, and that really um, seems comparable to the quotes you said. But what I think is um, an undercurrent here is that even though our language has changed, our attitudes probably haven't shifted that much. They're just, we're not allowed to say it that way, or bills aren't explicitly racist. But um, what we've seen, for example, in US policy, um, subsequently has been, you know, laws written in a way where the impact is the same, even if the mm. language is different. Um, and so hearing those quotes just really makes me think, well, like, what are the figures now who are, you know, saying things that we don't on its face think are racist now, but, you know, in a few decades, we'll be like, oh, my gosh, can you believe that? Mm. That's just horrible. And that's not at all to excuse it. It's just to say, I think that even though language can change over time. And that sounds really striking. Probably, I wonder how much people's attitudes ha- and our belief system has actually changed. And I fear it hasn't that much. I think that's such a good point is just this broader issue of examining um, how our history connects to the present moment. I think here in the UK, we've had a lot of conversations, I think in the US as well, there've been conversations about historical monuments and um, the names of institutions. And, um, you know, there's been some feeling that, you know, all this was all in the past and those those views were were okay back then and, and people were of their time. Um, but I think we have to really examine um, the influence that those views and those people you know the the impact that's still playing out in the in the present day um Mm. and yeah so i would just endorse what you're saying jenny yeah i think with um with what annabelle's doing with with this um the the collaborative um, decolonizing contraception is um i know just speaking to her it was um it's, it's maybe cemented my idea that this is really important that we do go go back and examine these things. Um, I know a lot of people do hear a lot in the maybe the more broader media that you know why are we why are we doing this? Why are we um, sort of removing uh, statues, etc. But um, I think we have to recognise and be open, you know be honest about you know if if a whole um, area of medicine is is was built on these uh, beliefs. Um, yeah, we can't, we can't just airbrush the, the racist beliefs out and then assume that the system that's still there is doesn't have any of those racist um, uh, bricks, I suppose. Totally. And the way that we've seen access to contraception and abortion care in the U.S. play out has very much been, you know, to the detriment of black women um, and women of color who, you know, with given the recent Supreme Court rulings, you know, have even though... Um, access to abortion was um, permitted to proceed without um, admitting rights in Louisiana recently, um, employers can now decide that they just 
don't want to cover people's birth control. But it's, again, one of those things where that decision seems um, neutral on its face, but will have, um, will likely have a disproportionately bad outcome for the most marginalized people, in particular, Black women. So let's hear more from that interview with Annabelle. When we talk about decolonizing contraception, we were trying to, and forming it, it was trying to be really practical in our approach. And I said from the beginning that decolonizing has become like a very academic term. We want our syllabuses and want our institutions and we want these statues removed. And everyday people on the street didn't really under, don't really understand what that looks like then practically. So in terms of our organizing, we, we organize on kind of three levels. First of all, it's about collecting. And it's about finding prof- professionals and non-professionals and people in that sector that um, have the same ideas and same unshared understanding and trying to build a better understanding and work collaboratively together. Kind of organising people can think about like implementing change in their own um, professional lives. The other thing that is kind of key is um, research. Now, um, there are only 15 black female professors in the UK, for example. So generally people research things that affect them. That's um, just how things often work or they've been affected or someone's been affected or something's led them down that path. So often marginalized communities in society are marginalized from higher education institutions and their needs are not really met in research. So GP, academic GPs, people that are supervisors, um, or, you know, are involved in research or policy, I think it's really important that people consider how to advocate or support work that it doesn't necessarily align with their interests or their own, you know, kind of like identities or self, yeah. but recognise that, that that work needs to be done and it needs to be supported because one of the reasons that it's hard to assess the magnitude of some of these problems is because we don't have the research. And then lastly, it's about community work or a lot of medical professionals don't necessarily do very much community work they might volunteer but it might not link with medicine which is also a really healthy thing to do um but a lot of our work is centered on going into communities and trying to assess people's feelings on issues yeah thank you that i mean it's so um yeah it res- very much resonates that I, I, in the community where i work i think we could do so much more to engage you know, we think, oh, we've got good access. You know, we're we're doing our best. You know, we we, but I mean, you can go further, can't you? And you you can have different conversations with people when it's not a consultation as well, don't you? Like you were saying, yeah, no, you absolutely do. And um, I think something else to be mindful of is that patients assess and pick and choose who they are going to open up to and how. And I think it's also important for um, us to reflect on how we can be more open um, and enhance that kind of patient-doctor experience. Mm. Because I think when people do come from marginalised backgrounds, whether that's because of, you know, their their, their race, um, their, their sexuality or their gender, um, when they're confronted with a doctor, sometimes that's already, already a barrier. And mm. then people can feel that they can relate more sometimes to people that look like them, but then that can be overcome by somebody's demeanour. And we are kind of taught this in medical school, but kind of will get swept up and 
up and lost but I hear it quite a lot um from community groups that you know I went here I went to this GP and they didn't hear me you know they were just um I couldn't relate they'd already made up their minds that I was Mm. young black and didn't necessarily comprehend the diagnosis so they didn't bother to explain it's it's so sad it's very sad to to hear that that that's but that is a really common experience isn't it I'm sure um Unfortunately, uh, yeah, I think it's quite rife and um, recently with all the protests and things. There's so many kind of viral tweets about how doctors are really complicit in the oppression of a lot of groups of people, particularly when it comes to racial um, racialized minorities. Like people um, do feel that often the medical profession kind of denies people's you know experiences or minimizes things or Mm. does not help in the way that it should be helping people and i i don't think that information is kind of reaching a lot of doctors um, and it's well understood that we're not just this altruistic um neutral profession yeah actually the policies we enact and how we interact are quite quite integral to like everything else going yeah, on yeah i'm really happy that because of covid19 and the and because of black lives matter now coming to the fore more professionals across a range of specialisms are more willing to engage with some of the conversations that we know that some of the the health inequalities we see are not due purely to kind of medical or comorbidities or genetic reasons Mm. they're clearly linked to structural determinants of health which are keenly linked to people's to to racism and classism and these other other isms that we have to address and i'm happy that we're having those conversations i think talking is a fundamental part of starting to address the issue and understand because prior to now what there had been is a resounding silence Mm amongst medical professionals because we have quite a layered history as i talked about at the beginning which isn't just restricted to sexual reproductive health but across the board and what people have done in response to that history is kind of try to bury it and then we've rebranded ourselves as neutral um, and medicine as an objective science and it isn't it hasn't ever been it's been very, it's always been driven by individual genders. It's always been pulled that way in this way based on the society of the time. You know, we used to have hysterical women and it used to be if we do this to this woman because she's hysterical, she'll be, <laughs> she'll, she'll calm down, whether that's, you know, surgical procedures or, you know, electro buzzing somebody or, you know, we've always, it's <laughs> time and, it has to change with society and people change medicine. And I'm just happy that we are starting to get to a place that actually people are even willing to acknowledge that that is the case. And then from there, I think we can talk about maybe creating meaningful change, whether that's in like our curriculums and translating that to having doctors that understand patients' needs and having better research. But the, the breaking of silence is quite fundamental to to the issue. 
I just thought the way that she summarized the kind of silence in medicine was so amazing that we've kind mm-hmm. of buried really complicated elements of history, rebranded ourselves as neutral, and then donned this objective hat of science. It, it really goes back to the question that you asked earlier, Navj, right? Like, is this a shared understanding that racism is very much embedded in our clinical care and medical education system? I think, yeah, that was just such a great way to put it. And it, you know, brings, I was just furiously taking notes as I was listening to her. It brings to mind, you know, the Tuskegee experiments in the United States, um, more recent evidence regarding the disparities in access to pain medication when black compared to white patients say that they're in pain and um, approach a doctor about that. But even, you know, the, the more atrocious things like, you know, yeah, kind of the violence that's been done to black people um, in the name of science and medicine going back even further. Um, mm-hmm. I, again, I just think the way she she described that as burying this mm-hmm. history, rebranding ourselves yep. as neutral, and then calling it calling ourselves objective in the name of silence in, in science was spot on. Yeah, I agree. And I think there are like my take is that there are two two things that kind of contribute to that. One is this kind of understanding that I think a lot of people still have that racism refers to that kind of interpersonal name calling. It's about, you know, that very explicit um, sort of prejudice and um, hatred that can manifest itself rather than um, seeing it as this kind of system or structural thing that's kind of embedded um, throughout so many of our institutions and, and structures. Um, and then the second thing is, I think as as medics, I mean, I can only really speak for myself, but um, I think that there is this tendency to see ourselves as, um, yeah, as on, you know, as neutral on the outside, we weigh things up, we're very rational, we use evidence, when actually we're human beings, part of our, the society that we live in, of course, we're going to be influenced by everything that kind of goes on around us and, and yeah, exactly the society that we live in. And I think it's dangerous if we think of ourselves as being apart from that. Yeah. And going back to the, the first part of our interview, you know, the, the things we can do to try to um, address that in some ways, you know, collaboration, you know, listening to others, speaking to people who, who have, are experts in it um, and community, you know, speaking to your patients. And it was, I, I yeah, she covered so much in that interview. But I think it's good good to go back to the the, the first part as well, and um, yeah, because I think there's some useful um, pointers for what we can be doing. Hmm. I mean, she's talking about something that we've talked about quite a lot, right? Which is trust building with our patients. Hmm. Um, and I mean, for me, I think that's that raises a lot of questions. You know, um, if you if, if, if I, as a white doctor, um, am seen as being complicit in the problem, or if I am unwittingly um, basically committing these microaggressions that I may or may not be aware of, we all have unconscious biases, then, um, you know, and I asked this question to Shawnee Scott, who we'll hear from later, but, you know, I, like, is, is trust even possible in that kind of system? How can we 
overcome the really huge de deck stacked against us. One way that the system is so messed up is that perversely, as a white GP, Jenny, you might be seen as more competent, you know, even by um, <sighs> patients of color, you know, than, than <sighs> an, another, you know, it just, it just plays out in all kinds of ways, no. I think. God, no. yeah. Well, just on that, so so we've got one last clip for, from my interview with Annabelle. Um, so I think it's a good place to, to play this now. Uh, and yeah, it really hit home to me. Let, let's hear this last clip from Annabelle. I often have, obviously we all have this, and we have this as junior doctors, where you can't take, uh, your colleague can't take someone's blood, right? And they come to you and they say, can you have a go? Or can you have a try? Because a few people had a go now, and then they want you to try. And then I found that often the patients that I'm told people can't bleed are dark-skinned black patients, mm -hmm. right? And right. what it boils down to is the fact that they can't see a vein, right? right. They can't see a vein, so they determine that this patient is going to be too hard for them to bleed, Yeah. right? Well, you know, most medical professionals that do phlebotomy know that you shouldn't really be able to see anything. No feeling for something, right? That's like the fundamental thing that we're all taught. Less than what, yeah. Yeah, you need to go feel for the vein and then put the needle in. But it's been a reoccurring theme in my mind, and I'm, I mean, I'm sure it must have happened to other people. Yeah. And I think maybe people feel more comfortable asking me because I'm maybe black, I don't know whether right. it's happened before, but it's noticeable. And then I went, to go and, I went to go and do some reading and I found that, you know, historically um, it was taught and actually, some people said that this was mentioned in their medical school syllabus that black people have tougher skin. So that's like a, a medical yeah, colonial yeah. kind of myth. Right. Black people have tougher skin, so it's more difficult to pierce and it feels less pain. And sometimes I wonder how these kind of things manifest in people's yeah. subconscious yeah. sometimes, or whether people just being othered makes yeah. people less willing to. To try, you know, and and then we we went on to talk a little bit about how that must feel for the patient, you know, to be to be the mm. the, the patient who, you know, the doctor won't try and take blood from or tries and fails, um, and you know, actually, and and often will get labelled, you know, they're difficult to bleed, and and it, and it just sort of feeds into that, um, I guess, that notion of being other, as she said, and and um, and and so not treated as a in the same way as a you know a white patient would be i've definitely heard that myth as well of you know black patients have tougher skin and it's just you know I, I probably heard that at a time in my career when i didn't have the i don't know knowledge to kind of challenge that at all and it it just sounds appalling when you hear it now it brings to mind an article that I wanted to read a little bit from just one line from um, in the New England Journal, which was a perspective written by a first year medical student, uh, LaShira Nolan, um, is a black medical student. And she wrote this piece, How Medical Education is Missing the Bullseye. Um, and she writes, it was not until I started medical school, however, that I realized the ways in which the standard representation of white and male might affect medical education, and consequently, the quality of care that my peers and I will provide to our future patients. Um, and she writes this piece after having taken a CPR training course in which all the mannequins were 
white male bodies. Um, and it kind of left her questioning, well, how do I do CPR on a person with breasts? And what if it's a pregnant person? Um, and then talks about, you know, the manifestations of Lyme disease on black and brown skin. And it just really gets at Annabelle's point, like people have been taught using white bodies and white skin as a course of routine for so long that they've relied on visual cues that aren't always there in every body. Um, I just, yeah, it, it is again, another sign of the way that this is um, a structural issue and um, needs to be yeah, conceptualized as one as opposed to just, oh, this, this one person was mean or bad. I spoke with Dr. Shani Scott. She is an internal medicine doctor who's currently um, faculty at Montefiore Medical Center. She's um, an assistant program director in the internal medicine residency program, and she is also one of the co-chairs of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee in the Department of Medicine. We had a couple conversations about the history of medical education in the United States, and she specifically focused on the Flexner Report, which had been commissioned by a couple different family philanthropies to explore the quality of medical education in the United States. Um, but like most things, that was code for try to find a way to basically kick Black people out of this institution to toss them a bone, which allows them to be, quote unquote, separate but equal, um, and has had long-term ramifications on the number of Black physicians in the United States, and in turn, the quality of primary care that Black people have been able to access in our country. So Flexner himself is, at that time, was the foremost um, scholar on education in the U.S., um, formerly, I believe, trained at Harvard and then had then had transitioned to Hopkins at that point in time. And a white man. Yes, and a white man. Just, <laughs> just making sure we were on the same page. <laughs> yes, just, yes, I thought you're right. Like, make sure. um, yes, a white man. And um, because he, at that time, was the foremost expert on the systems of education and um, was very prolific in his writings about it, the... Um, Committee of Medical Education was able to convince the Carnegie Foundation to commission this type of um, investigation and report, at which point in time, Flexner was tapped to survey, I believe at that time, 155 medical schools throughout the U.S. and Canada to kind of get an assessment of what is the state or what is the status of medical education right now and what are, and ultimately, what are your recommendations on what we need to do? I just want to say at that point, when he conducted this report, there were seven black medical schools um, and there were hundreds of black hospitals throughout the country, the majority of which being in Tennessee, North Carolina, um, D.C., Florida, um, Louisiana. 
Um, and at that time, they spent most of the time training medical professionals and, and black nurses as well to provide care for the emancipated population um, after uh, the, the Civil War. So going back to the outcomes of this report, Flexner spent, I believe, two to three years surveying the country, seeing about 155 medical schools. And ultimately, his recommendations were that this is all um, nonsense <laughs> and that he um, strongly recommended that in order to increase the, the quality of education and ultimately clinical care that we were giving in the United States, we needed to standardize our system. And the systems in which that he based this off of were the university systems that he saw in England, France, and Germany. The reason why I bring it up is for it's twofold in this because what it did is one, it made um, a Eurocentric standard, right? To hold all medical schools mm -hmm. to. Um, a standard in which people of color were not able to give their voices to at that time. Mm -hmm. And then I think the most detrimental aspect um, to this recommendation of following the university system and all medical schools need to um, model that of Hopkins at that time mm -hmm. um, was that it ultimately led to the closure of multiple medical schools uh, across the country. So we started off with about 155 at the end of the Flexman report, upon the uh, adoption of his recommendations, the U.S. only had 66. Wow. Yes. And then in addition to that, out of the seven Black-owned and Black-ran medical schools in the country, only two of them survived, which was Howard University hmm. College of Medicine and Meharry hmm. College of Medicine. The most impactful aspect of this had to speak to the pipeline and the representation of black physicians in the country. And ultimately what we still see playing out today is access to care. A part of his recommendations is that one, he upheld segregation saying that we should train um, black doctors, well he called us Negroes, but <laughs> we, should, um, um, we should change black, train them only so they can Flexner did advocate that black physicians should be trained, but only to the extent of being sanitarians and being mm -hmm. able to teach um, just the um, fundamentals of hygiene and that they should mm -hmm. only be relegated to give care to only black communities. Mm -hmm. um, and furthermore, they should be excluded from practicing surgery, which at that time was considered to be more of an elite um, an astute practice of medicine. Like, I was kind of expecting you to say, well, they adopted some policies which sounded okay or were, you know, politically correct, but had this bad outcome, which we see so frequently, but actually this is just downright. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is, you know, not funny. I'm just it's shocking to learn sometimes the way that those things that our, our policy making has been just fundamentally um, racist. Um, and so can you tell me more about um, the pipeline and representation and just explain for our audience why um, representation of, you know, black people, of women of um, indigenous communities, of other people of color in the United States is so important in our um, medical student population. 
Right now, we have a very racialized system of how we approach patients, even in our testing, like all the uh, sickle cell patients are, are black. Um, we racialize our testing and that becomes internalized and then gets carried out in their care for um, even to different measurements as far as uh, GFR when it comes mm -hmm. to our patient mm -hmm. and, and even addressing spirometry readings with our um, lung or pulmonary function test, all based in racist ideology, yet it's still mm. propagated. And when you switch to a framework of structural competency, it starts from the baseline that we are all physiologically the same, right? Mm -hmm. We are genes, mm -hmm. our genetics are proven this. There's lots of literature out there that says um, there's no difference in most outcomes of diseases just based off of physiology alone. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, what environment is this patient existing in that is producing increased allostatic load, which is this mm -hmm. the terminology used for chronic stress, that is eliciting all this physiologic dysfunction that we call disease? What is pushing mm -hmm. them further into disease and away from what we call health? Mm -hmm. And structural competency helps the learner look at the patient as um, existing within a system as opposed to believing there is something inherently or inborn physiologically wrong with this patient mm. overall. Mm. Is there an example that comes to mind from your work or from some of the precepting that you've done where you've seen how, you know, either, um, where you've seen how having training and structural competence, competency can or has had a meaningful impact on the care that someone is able to deliver just to help make this even more concrete and tangible for our listeners? One of the main ways that structural competency or having or working through a lens of structural competency works is increasing the sensitivity of our trainees to the complaints of their patients because too often um, people are unaware of how their racialized medical education has desensitized them mm. to the complaints of people of color mm. and as a result people of color are systematically under-resourced under-cared mm. for and we poor health outcomes, even when they're within our care. Mm -hmm. um, and this helps perpetuate the health disparities. Um, this particular case, um, I was speaking with my resident who was taking care of a woman who had a new complaint, a new GYN complaint, mm -hmm. and had had multiple episodes of a uh, BV infection before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, when she came to me, you know, it was, oh, I think it's BV again. Um, let's just, you know, I'm going to give her flagell and send her on her way. And I was like, okay, that's great, you know, but let's take a step back. Let's take the opportunity to get to know who your patient is and walk through, like, do you know her? Do you know her mm -hmm. job? Do you know where she lives? How old is she? When did she mm -hmm. move here? Just to have a better understanding of what system does my patient live within that mm -hmm. can be leading to this recurrence of um, illness in her. And I think most importantly is understanding what is my patient at increased risk of, right? Because mm -hmm. she is in this lower socioeconomic system where she is, does not have full access to all the resources and education um, that could help her live or obtain health better. Mm -hmm. um, and what is she at risk for? And mm -hmm. we were able to talk about how black women, um, 
disproportionately have BV. And a lot of that has to, yep, yes, yes. Um, to health disparity. Um, and a lot of it being related to changes in the vaginal floor from living in a condition of chronic stress. Hmm. That place hmm. these women at increased risk, right? Increased allosteric load leading to immune dysfunction and changes in their vaginal floor that make them more susceptible to having recurrent BV infection. So being that you're her doctor, it is important that you know the, the hurdles that she has to overcome, what she's at risk for, and that it's important that you take her complaints seriously um, and that you whenever she has an issue to make sure that she's not at risk for another STI. Are you going to mm -hmm. do some more? Mm -hmm. Give her more resources. Mm -hmm. Give her, mm -hmm. make sure we do the pregnancy test. Make sure we do the STI screen. Make sure that we educate her mm -hmm. on what she's at risk for because mm -hmm. when she leaves here, she still exists in that system. And as physicians, I feel like our first role is to be a teacher and help educate our parent, our patients and empower them in their own care. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that if we're not telling them adequately what they're at risk for because we have no, um, we're not cognizant of the structural racism that they mm -hmm. live within. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very great um, academic exercise and she learned a lot, pulled papers about it, and now she's gonna be able to carry that with all of her um, patients going forward and hopefully each one teach one as she shares with one of her <laughs>so I thought it was interesting that um, you know, we, we in this podcast, you know, listening, you know, it's our seventh episode now. We still keep having the same themes coming back. You know, li listen to your patient, get to know your patient. Um, I, I suppose time, uh, you know, that's something else Annabelle and I talked about was you know, if you only got ten minutes, um, it's very difficult to get to know any, any patient, and but that can leave a lasting impression on a patient who who um, will interpret that, and there's a the perception of what that means that you didn't have time for, for their problem and to listen. Um, that's just something that, that, yeah, listening to that back, um, made me think about that. Um, I was just struck again by, um, I suppose this, um, the really interesting points about, uh, what, uh, things that can be attributed to biological differences, um, which is something that Annabelle brought up as well. And I think so often in our training and in our practice, we refer to things that we've been, that we've learned about. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, but EGFR is one of them um, in that interview talking about recurrent BV. Um, you know, there are all these things where just in passing, it says, you know, I don't know, like, the, you know, be careful interpreting um, an estimated uh, GFR in um, black people. Actually, often it will say Afro-Caribbean people. So are any of you watching I May Destroy You, just as a kind of yes. slight tangent oh, yes, with Michaela Cole? Did you see that scene where she goes to see her consultant in a hospital and he talks to her about her kidney function and her slightly raised um blood pressure and he says you know because you're because you're um 
Afro-Caribbean and she says I'm not Afro-Caribbean she says I'm, <laughs> I'm African origin um, and she's like you as a doctor practicing in London should have the cultural competency to know the difference oh, sorry this is a total tangent but um, I was I was watching that and thinking like I, I must have made that same blunder hundreds of yeah. times you know as a doctor yeah. working in London um, and not having the right cultural competency sorry this is a slight tangent to my actual point which is about I think what I'm really struck by is this point about um, what we often assume are biological underpinnings um, to differences. And so often that's not borne out by further research or, um, you know, actually the thing that does connect a lot of the differences we see is that structural racism, is that experience of care, access to care, the um, stresses related to racism. Um, And I think that's definitely something that has made me reflect on kind of my own understanding, I suppose, and think about, you know, a learning point for me is trying to work out, well, actually, where are there important biological differences? And I think, you know, often we talk about vitamin D and how that relates to kind of the levels of melanin in your skin. Um, and, you know, all these other things that we're, we're taught about as being linked to um, race. And actually, would it be more accurate to say that they're related to racism well should we do we, we've we've been planning the our vitamin d episode for some time as well haven't we should we should we try and get some answers to that one that specific example yeah i think i think i mean yeah i would definitely want to think this through some more i mean i i i, to- I totally agree with you and also hear what you're saying navjoy and just to expand that to another thing that both annabelle and shawnee mentioned is this piece about the pipeline and about representation in higher education and in medical education. Um, And it's much less about any kind of genetic or biologic um, feature of people and much more about discrimination on the basis of their skin color, which has resulted in the lack of, you know, and the lack of black female researchers in the UK. I mean, 50 in the country is just, that blew me away. She's fifth. Wow. I mean, I thought she said 50, um, let alone 15. Um, Mm. And, you know, Shani talked a lot about that too, um, just in terms of making policies that um, changed the standards to medical schools are still having Um, detrimental impacts to this day in terms of limiting the number of black students in medical education in the United States and perpetuating the lack of access to primary care, which I mean, and again, that's, that's on the basis of, of discrimination because of skin color, not because, you know, people have tried to use the biological argument as a justification for racism, which obviously, um, you know, doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. Well, one thing I find quite hard, though, is balancing that sense of history. Um, Well, sometimes I don't even know that there is that history, because I think, um, I mean, in Britain, you know, um, I'm thinking about India and its relationship to Britain. Mm. uh, And, you know, um, the, the way that the empire is often spoken about in Britain is as a kind of really positive thing. 
Um, and mm. actually that doesn't kind of always align with my understanding of the history, um, or at least, you know, what I hear my parents and my family in India talking about. Mm. And some of it is even, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, that awareness of history, I think can also be very influenced by, um, the lens that you're looking at it. And, you know, from your point from before who you talk to, mm. um, and then, and then if we're not kind of having that sort of reckoning that really clear-sighted reckoning with the past it makes it very difficult um, to see how those legacy effects might play out in the current you know if you believe that things were left in the past or that they were much rosier back then so we we need to make some changes obviously um based on our, our, what we've heard so far and our next guest um says that primary care as gps you know we're really well positioned to do that um she's Joan Sadler. She's got a ton of experience in primary care as a previous chief executive of a primary care trust. And she was awarded an OBE in 2007 for her services to health and diversity. And she's got some really, really nice practical suggestions uh, for what we can do. That's coming up in a minute after this from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Now let's hear Joan Sadler offering her tips on how GPs can help fight racism in healthcare. So it's Joan Sadler, I'm Director of Partnerships and Equality at the NHS Confederation and I also co-chair the NHS Equality and Diversity Council. I think this is a great idea to talk about primary care and discrimination and racism because uh, one of the greatest enablers we have throughout the UK is the opportunity for primary care to be as close to the people as it is We've known that primary care have always been, uh, the practitioners of primary care have been the ones who are not just interested in health inequalities, but see on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. They have the ability to innovate. Sometimes that has been stopped. And as a a huge workforce, we know that 90% of care happens outside of hospitals. So that huge workforce is really the one is really the one that can change things for the better on a whole range of health mm. inequalities. So I think, yeah, primary and, care, great ally in this. So then if you, if you look then at um, myself as a GP or in my practice, um, say we're, we're in this great position where we, we're having this daily contact with mm. patients, I hope, um, but, but we may feel, you know, well, I'm not racist uh, or, or I don't feel my service is racist. But um, I think more and more people are talking about you know, the sort of hidden racism or the institutional racism that we need yeah. to be more aware of. What, what do you think we need to look at then in primary care in that mm-hmm. regard? For all GPs, 
to wait for you know Royal College or somebody to put on a program that tells you you're racist or not and then to act on it fundamentally for me that's not what I see with with the best GPs and there are many I've worked with you know previously uh, in the NHS best GPs and you know yourself you, your whole practice is around going and seeking the evidence isn't it and finding out for yourself and then incorporating into mm. your practice how, ways in which to work and I think that's something fundamentally that GPs of any color can do mm. find out what this word racism means and what we mean by racist practice and then there's something about how do I share that information across either a practice or wider to say right how are we going to combat combat this guys thirdly please don't leave it just to the bme gps to have to front that all the time yeah. it, it's insulting in this day and age to be even questioned to say does racism really matter you know we've we've left phrases behind like we think you've got a chip on your shoulder we don't hear that so much but we do have a more subtle kind of racism, which is, you know, right, we're in COVID now. Come on, we can't talk about those issues. Let's talk about the real issues and how we manage, you know, our emergency preparedness, um, you know, reports and reviews. And hey, presto, what is one of the first things that COVID teaches mm -hmm. us is that, guys, there's a differential impact here. And, and that's something that I think there's a point in time now where we as an NHS have to act. Yeah. So I'm just because we talked about this in our, in our clinical meeting at the practice about you know, we wanted to go out and listen maybe in a different way to, to what you hear in a consultation, recognising yeah. that you might hear very different things from, from your patients. Yeah. Um, but we actually weren't quite sure how to do that. Of course, there's patient participation groups, but I think there's sometimes a diversity issue within them or, you know, but maybe that's our own fault we need to fix. But how, how, how do you do that? How do you go out and listen as a practice? Mm -hmm. so, you, you'll have patients who aren't, they haven't got the time to, there's a whole cultural thing with patient participation groups and they're great for those who can take the yeah. time and want to get involved in that activity. Uh, I remember when I was um, uh, doing some of the PCT stuff, you know, uh, there, there's an economic imperative for why, how people use their time. And so we see that coming through, don't we, that we know that people just need to work actually and their time is actually quite precious but those coming into your practice who don't have the time to sit in the patient participation group but if you're holding these one-off areas where you're saying we want to hear from you we're going to go to community organizations here are three of the ones we're going to just pick them where you have you know people go into it might be a faith group it might be a community center that's really well used and use the intelligence of some of your members of um, some of your patients who aren't in the patient participation group to say do you have a suggestion around where we may go start very um you know start almost with a plan that says a plan is let's hear where we should go the second way you can do this is to get people who are very capable this is what they do so your local voluntary service you know action um they there are in every local authority there is a voluntary sector action type organization that is the umbrella organization for all health groups. Now they may say, well, you know, this is our time. We need to do this in collaboration with you. You set the brief of what you want. You want a diverse group of members. So there are people who can work in those organizations to bring together a listening group. Or frankly, you have specialists uh, through 
particularly equalities organisations who can kind of send you to experts who will work alongside with you mm. on quite a small scale project to just reach groups in an authentic way where you're going out quite a small project you don't need to spend loads of money but you're making sure you've got that diversity because those groups are there you're just waiting to be engaged with but they're not seldom heard they're not mm. you know they're not hard to reach they are there and they're waiting for you know you as a bigger player a constant community presence which a lot of the people value they're waiting for you to come to them because okay. it, it's harder for them to mobilize and come to you unless there's a gripe. So without you going to them in a, in a gripey way and saying, we want you to consult, just saying, here's what we're doing. We just want to listen to you. We want to hear you. You'll be surprised the, the social value that that starts to build just for your practice. Okay, well, I'm going to do it. Okay, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know what, ha yeah. what happens. But, um, but, but can I say, j just on the back of that, you know, yeah. What sounds easy to me, because I've been steeped in doing this, you know, there will be some of your non-exec colleagues uh, across the system who know how to do this really well. Mm. You know, we've got a workforce race equality standard program now where at least we're saying everyone needs to have BME non-executives in governing organizations who can connect with the communities yeah. because we know we've got women on a whole disabilities will be the next one where we're really failing but there are a pool of people who understand healthcare and who connect can connect you to these organizations locally yeah. who could help you yeah. it's really worth doing So you could hear there, I was uh, making my promise to Joan to <laughs> to try out some of these things. <laughs> and um, and I did actually, so I spoke to her last week and um, I emailed a couple of local organisations. And um, yeah, we're, I'm having a chat with an organisation called Black Thrives, um, who are doing some work on um, vascular dementia and how, how the impacts of that on, on the black local black community. So um, yeah, well, so far she's right and maybe I'll keep you guys updated as to what, what yeah, becomes do. of Yeah, do. That would be great. It's interesting to hear how Joan operating in a completely different setting with a very different um, healthcare model agrees with Toyin about this being like a teaching moment in time and an opportunity for us to really kind of listen to people and see what they want and need and engage them in conversations um, around their experience of healthcare. Um, I thought it was really interesting when she, when Joan was talking about the economic imperative that so many people have. And of course, mm -hmm. like we all have to earn money and provide for our family. This effort that needs to happen to listen to our patient communities, I think that's really important. And obviously, yeah, there's a lot of detail around that, about how we, um, you know, can compensate people for their time and how we access communities that, you know, people can sometimes lazily, I think, refer to as being hard to reach. And actually, often mm. it's more of a problem of the people trying to do the reaching, not trying hard enough. Mm. Um, mm. So there's that. But I also wonder how much, you know, so much of the conversation that we've seen in recent weeks has been around as individuals kind of educating ourselves about racism and what it means to be a racist. And I think referring back to what I was saying before about, you know, as GPs, we're also just individuals living in society. And I wonder if 
in addition to those kind of professional aspects of um, addressing any potential racism, you know, it's also important to do that individual um, mm. education and work as well. Yeah, and I, uh, I was so uplifted by, well, yeah, I was so uh, kind of um, enthusiastic from my conversation with Joan that, you know, it's again, it's using the skills that I think as GPs, you know, we... I'd like to think that these are our kind of core skills. It's, you know, listening to people, isn't it? And, um, and understanding, uh, and, and, you know, I guess we're trying our best to, uh, to make a difference, recognizing that we can't, you know, with our more complex patients, you recognize you can't fix every, every problem perhaps in, in, in certainly not in one go, but we know how to sort of begin the journey or, or go on that journey with patients to, to start to make some real, meaningful differences. I think that's a good way of conceiving it. Thank you to Annabelle, Shani and Joan and thank you to Childcare for your theme tune and those bits of background music that sound so nice. Uh, we've got our deep breath out uh, coming up in a minute, but first we have to try and drum up some ratings and subscribers. Um, a few episodes ago, uh, if you remember, I was very pathetically so begging people to to rate us, and uh, we did get four more five star ratings on on the Apple Store. Is that how many people we think are listening to us? Then? I think so. Yes, <laughs> just, just our, our four yeah. listeners. So, could those four people please go back now and give us a review yes, as well? Re- register another <laughs> account and re- yeah. So, um, but then we got a one-star review last week. So, we, we, which which Boo. hurt, didn't it? Yeah. Well, so, no, actually, I don't want to. Sorry, I booed instinctively, but actually, people should feel able to leave. It's true. It's true. Whatever rating they think we yes. deserve, you and that be, might be one star. You won't be cancelled if you give us less than five stars. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you can go and rate us, uh, remember that five stars means you think we're okay, and five stars and a, re- and a review means you think that uh, we're really good and you'd like us to keep going. So, we also need I subscribers, um, and please make sure you subscribe on the Deep Breath In channel um, because um, although we're currently on the BMJ podcast channel, uh, that won't be the case for much longer so if you want to keep listening to us please find the deep breath in channel on your podcast app and subscribe Uh, finally it's time for our deep breath out where we've been celebrating the things we do to relax or get away from it all after a long day of telephone consultations today we're hearing from one of our guests joan sadler who told me before in our interview that in her spare time she sings in a gospel choir and she very kindly and amazingly sang a few lines from a protest song and anthem of the civil rights movement, uh, We Shall Overcome. I sing alto. <clears throat> the eyes of all wait upon thee, but thou givest them their meat in due season. We shall overcome, we shall overcome. I'm going to stop there. It's too high for me. Oh, <laughs> I'm brilliant. not singing the whole thing. That was amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Tom, did you get weepy? I was so weepy, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I love, I love gospel that's music. That's amazing. It's, uh, yeah. 